we're just about six weeks away from Easter, and so we're working on a Good Friday service and Palm Sunday service, Easter service. We've got a lot of exciting things happening. But mark your calendars. We're going on Sunday morning, April 30th. We're going to have a guest preacher. His name is Dr. Bruce Ware. He is the head of the theology department at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he's going to come in and teach us how do we biblically understand the doctrine of the Trinity. There's a lot of confusion in our culture about the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a popular movie that's making it even more confusing today out there. And he's going to come help us think biblically about how to understand the Trinity. Because a lot of even well-meaning illustrations that we use to try to describe the Trinity end up breaking down, end up really teaching heresy in some ways. And so he's going to really help us think through, as believers, how do we relate to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Plus some special things going on that morning, plus the worship service. And for the college students, there'll be actually a college lunch. And he's going to do a Q&A so college students can you invite the college students you know to come. They can bring their theological questions and talk to them about how to engage in different theological topics on the university campus. And so a lot going on that morning. And then that night on April 30th, we're going to start back about a quarterly thing. We're going to call it Nights of Praise or something to that effect. And there's going to be no sermon, no preaching, just a time for us to gather and praise the Lord. And so April 30th, mark your calendars for both of those things, for Bruce Ware being here to help us understand the Trinity, and that night for just a praise time together. Um, well, tonight we're continuing our study of how to understand the Bible. I'm glad you're back for this. We're going through this. We've been looking at the genres of Scripture. Remember, genres were distinctive parts of Scripture. Each genre has a different way of understanding, different principles to interpret that particular genre. We looked at historical narrative. We looked at poetry, we looked at Proverbs, we looked last week at prophecy, and we only have really just a few more left. So tonight we come to the genre of the parables, and then next week we'll look at the epistles, and then we'll talk about special forms of speech and language, and talk about practical study helps, and we'll wrap it up. So we're in the home stretch of this particular Wednesday night series. Just a quick reminder of why we are studying this. I say it every week, but it bears repeating that we're studying this because we want to know God. We are his people, and he's called us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And apart from the revelation of God in Scripture, we have no way to know who he is. And so we need to study the word and know how to study the word and understand the word so that we can know the God who's given us the Bible so we might worship him and enjoy communion with him and relating to him. And so that's why we are doing this. And it's worth our efforts. And even as we think about that, I've given us two parables on the front page to help us realize it is worth our efforts to know God. And to pursue him. Look at the first one, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. This is called the parable of the hidden treasure. And by the way, these are the shortest parables in the Bible. These are like one verse parables here. But Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then Matthew chapter 13, 45 and 46, the next two verses, is called the parable of the pearl of great value. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. In search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Even these short parables, these remind us of the value of the kingdom of God. The value of God's reign, the value of us living as God's people in this. And it's worth pursuing, it's worth giving our all to pursue and to know God. I just want to encourage you with that, and I'm encouraged by you being here week after week. So turn the page, let's get started as we talk about what are the parables. What are the parables? Now first of all, the parables are important to understand. It's really three reasons why I think they're important to understand. Number one, one-third of Jesus' teachings are parables. You know, depending on who you talk to, about 33 to 35% of Jesus' teachings are in the form of parables. So if we want to understand Jesus, he's spoken a third of what he spoke to us as recorded in Scripture is in the form of these parables, these stories. So if we want to know him, we have to know the parables. Second reason I think it's important to understand is non-believers quote them. They're memorable. So people still, even non-Christians, talk about the prodigals. Or non-Christians will refer to the Good Samaritan and being a Samaritan. Why? Because 
these stories have stuck even with non-believers. And so even for our evangelism, even for our ability to relate to non-believers, we need to understand what's really going on behind these stories and the message behind them. But the third reason we need to understand them is because they're really misunderstood in a lot of the churches of America. And a lot of Bible says parables get misunderstood. It's perhaps, along with some of the other genres, it is really practically taught in a lot of incorrect ways in many, many places. And so it's important for us to understand. Now, what is a parable? Here is my definition. It's more of a conglomeration of several different definitions, but this is how I understand it. A parable is a story of comparison told to teach one main point and to call for a response. A story of comparison told to teach one main point and to call for a response. So let's think about all those things. First of all, it's a story. That means it has a beginning, it's got a plot, and it's got an ending, just like any story would have. It's got characters in it. And this is where it begins to, to trip up some people. The stories are fictional. And if that kind of starts rubbing you wrong, it's okay. The stories are fictional. Now, the truth they teach is not fictional. It's truth, but they're fictitious stories. The people in them are made-up people to teach a point. That's how what parables are designed to do. That means as being fictional, fictional, it is not a historical account. Now, again, let me clarify. Jesus actually said these parables. So it's historically true that Jesus said these. It's historically true that people heard them. But the people in the parable are, are fiction. So basically, when you think of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and he's got this poor beggar laying outside his gate, and he dies, and the beggar dies, and, and, the, and the rich man goes to hell, the beggar goes to heaven, and you see the chasm separating those. That's a parable. There really was no rich man named Lazarus who died. There were, sorry, rich man who died. No poor beggar named Lazarus who died. Those are fictitious characters, but actually told by Jesus in a very true story here to help us understand a very important truth. Same thing, the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15, that a lot of us have read before and talked about many times before in our conversations. There was not a real prodigal son and a real father watching on the porch. That is a fictitious story to teach a very real truth that we need to understand. So the stories are historically shared. They were literally shared by Jesus, but the people, the action is a fictitious story, yet Let's not forget the meaning is true. It falls under 2 Timothy 3.16. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. The parables are breathed out by God, inspired by God. So they are true in the sense they are given by God. The meaning is true, but they are to be understood as stories. Yet in their meaning are to be inspired, infallible, and errant. So first of all, they're stories. They're secondly all, they're stories of comparison. A comparison is where something is likened to something it is not. There's a comparison here between what you see in the parable and something outside the parable, a truth that we need to understand. And usually it's an earthly story to teach us a spiritual truth. And so the parable illustrates something that is very true that God wants us to know. The second, or the third thing in this definition is the story of comparison told to, this is the third important part, to teach one main point. And this is where a lot of people trip up on the parables, and we'll get to this in a minute. But parables teach one thing. There is one idea, one core teaching of it, not multiple ideas. You don't read a parable and be like, here's the three important principles of this parable. Parables were understood to have one singular message that was to be understood from it. And then finally, it calls for a response. Jesus used the parables to speak to specific people in specific situations in history to elicit a particular response from them. And so understanding that parables are designed to create a response, and they do that when you, you see it throughout the Bible, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but they create a response because they're stories. And friends, if you think about it, think about the way God has wired our brains in creating us. We remember stories, don't we? When we watch movies, when we listen to music, which is stories, when we, whatever it is you see, we remember those. Our brains grasp onto those, and they can affect the way we feel. 
Like, even if you, I don't know any of you guys get into Broadway stuff, but, like, I really enjoy Phantom of the Opera and Wicked. Some of you guys are like, oh, no, our pastor likes Broadway, but that's okay. But, like, like watching Wicked, that you growing up on The Wizard of Oz, you always had the, you thought The Wizard was a pretty good guy and Elphaba was a pretty evil witch. But then as you watch Wicked through the, the movie and the way they pull in emotions, the storyline creates a response. And before you know it, by the end of it, you're cheering on the witch and you're really mad at the wizard because they've created a response and the story remembers it. And so, you know, after I saw Wicked the first time for the next few weeks, I was walking around the church building humming songs like I'm defying gravity. I'm going, I'm in church and I'm singing Wicked songs. And, you know, but why? Because it, it's stories and our brains remember stories. And so God gave parables because they're memorable. Most of you can't tell me what my sermon point was from three weeks ago. But if I ask you to tell me a movie you saw three years ago, you could probably still tell me that movie because we remember stories. And so the parables are designed to be memorable, but also to elicit a response. It's like movies create responses. One of the few Old Testament parables we actually have is in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. This is after David has committed Bathsheba, or committed adultery with Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet confronts him. Now just listen to how, he, how this works and the response it elicits. In 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought. And he brought it it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cuff and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So there's the parable. Well, David got there was a teaching behind this, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has did this thing because he had no pity. So it elicited a response. Then Nathan turns it back on David. You are the man. There was a reason for giving that parable. It confronted David in his sins, and if you go read what happens afterwards in Psalm 51, that, when he talks about the Psalms, David repents. That parable confronted him with a, a very important truth that God used to lead him to repent. So why, so why did Jesus use the parables? Well, I've given you a, a quote from Matthew 13 here on your handout. Matthew chapter 13, just look along in verses 10 through 17, as we see several reasons why Jesus used parables. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he, Jesus, answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse 14. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And let me just stop. This is the prophecy we looked at last week, if you remember back from Isaiah 6. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are you, your eyes. For they see in your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So why did Jesus use parables? One, he used it to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God to his people. He used the parables to reveal mysteries. There's things that are hard for us to understand. And when stories come along, like with David and Nathan, there's stories that just we can latch on to truth and how things work in God's kingdom. So, so Jesus used them to reveal these mysteries of his kingdom to his people. They're pictures that they could remember. They're memorable. But second of all, and this is harder for, for us in our culture, but he used the parables to continue to harden those who don't believe. And that kind of goes against and rubs us wrong in a lot of our American sense of fairness. But the text is here that the parables are blinding to people in this. Those who are outside the kingdom do not get them 
and they end up being further means of their own judgment on that. And in that, we ultimately see God's sovereign rule. So how do we understand these parables, these stories of comparison that teach one point and call for response? What do we do with these? And kind of like we did with big pictures back a few weeks ago of how we understand Scripture in general, I'm going to give you two things we do not do first to lead to several things we should do. So what do we not do in understanding parables? Number one on your handout there on that page, we do not allegorize the text. Now, a quick refresh on what allegory is. Most of you probably don't go back to high school English very often and read those high school notes for the fun of it, right? What is allegory? Allegory is where each part of the story means something quite different than what is in the story. So to allegorize something is to take it in a totally different meaning than what the story itself has. And this is really popular in our culture. There's something in our human nature that loves to find hidden meanings and secret meanings. Why did the Da Vinci Code become so popular? Because there's something in our culture that's like, ooh, there's something there I've never seen, and there's a mystery in this, and we're trying to find hidden codes and hidden meanings. That's not what parables about. We don't allegorize those. Unfortunately, in church history, at least early church history, parables were allegorized. Even by pretty solid early church fathers, they would allegorize the parables and come up with awful things of it. So, for example, Augustine, who's a classic hero of church history, he took particularly the parable of the Good Samaritan, which, you know, we're pretty, pretty familiar with that one. And he, he allegorized, he says, basically, the man going down to Jericho represents Adam. Jerusalem represented heaven. Jericho was the moon, which represented our mortality. The robbers were the devil. And when they stripped him, they were taking away his immortality, causing him to face death. And beating him, they were trying to persuade him to sin. Leaving him half dead represented his sin. The priest represented the Old Testament law. The Levite represented the prophets. The good Samaritan was Christ. The binding up of the wounds was restraint placed upon sin, so he would not sin. Oil was hope. Wine was exhortation of spirit of word. The animal was the body of Christ. The end was the church. And I mean, on and on he went. And he did that, and that was really popular in church history for a while to allegorize the parables like that. But in the time of the Reformation, the Reformers, like John Calvin, realized that's not the correct understanding of it. In fact, Martin Luther did not have very kind comments about what happened with these early church fathers with allegorizing parables. You know, we're coming up on the 500th anniversary this year of the Protestant Reformation. And so in light of that, Martin Luther said about one of the early church fathers allegorizing parables, he said, It's silly, it's amazing twaddle, absurd, and altogether useless. Not very kind, but in fact, that when we allegorize parables, that is, in Luther's own words, what happens when we do that with the text. Unfortunately, the allegorization of parables is making a comeback. It's becoming very popular in contemporary preaching to take parables and make them allegories because we can make it say basically anything we want to say to our current situation. And so it's becoming quite popular now. And so, in fact, there was a pastor some years ago who took Matthew 13, what we just read at the beginning of our time together, of, you know, the whole pearl hidden in the field and pursue, or the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great value. And he allegorized it, actually preached from the pulpit, that the treasure in the pearl is us. And the one buying the treasure is Jesus. And that's about Jesus pursuing us. Well, friends, that may sound really good. It makes us really good. But I'm so amazing. I'm a shiny pearl and Jesus wants me. That's not what, at all what that text is about. That is as far from the meaning of that text as what it could be. But again, it's, it can sound very religious, very pious, but it's wrong. We do not allegorize parables. So turn the page. Number two, in light of that, we do not overanalyze the details of the parable. We do not overanalyze. Some, some scholars call it do not press the details of it. Remember, parables have just one point. It's trying to make a comparison to teach us something. So we do not press the details meaning not every detail in the story has significance and that's hard for us because it's so different than what we typically do as we approach other genres of scripture the details are not historical they are there to make the story a story and to make it memorable so you take again the good samaritan 
the meaning of the Good Samaritan does not change if he goes up or down in the direction. That makes no difference. The meaning of the story really doesn't change depending on which person, which order comes by. We don't need to get hung up on those details and press the meaning of those details. You get into things like in Matthew chapter 25, there's a parable of the ten virgins, and they're getting ready for the, bride to, or the bridegroom to come, and five are ready and five are not. Well, that detail of five and five doesn't really matter. That doesn't mean at the end of the age that only 50% of the world is going to be ready. You don't press the details like that to try to draw conclusions from those particular parables. You go into Matthew chapter 18, and the guy who has this massive debt that gets forgiven and then he has someone come to him with a tiny debt, and he won't forgive that. That parable in Matthew 18, it doesn't matter how much the numbers are. Those numbers there are a teacher principle. We don't press the details. I wonder why a certain amount and what the difference is. You know, we don't get into that with the parables. And again, that's hard for us because in other genres, we do that. In historical narrative, we ask, why would Joseph have told his brothers about his dream? In historical narrative, like what we're going through in John, it's important for us to say, well, now, what is the significance of Jesus saying, you must be born again? We press the details. In every other genre of Scripture, we want to make sure we understand every little little nitpicky, little tiny part of the text so we understand it. We do that in all these other genres, but we do not get it. Do that when we come to parables. When we come to the parables, if you start asking questions, well, why was, the prod- why was in the prodigal son, why was the older brother standing out in the field? Well, when Jesus made up the story, he thought that was a good way to tell it. That's why. You know, we don't press those details or trying to find all that symbolism and why this thing happens. There's, there's stories to teach a point. And realize if you press the details, if you overanalyze the details of a parable, we get into trouble. So if you take the parable of the prodigal son and you start saying, okay, well, the father represents God. If you start pressing the details, well, who's he married to? He's got a son here. You know, where do you start, how far do you take it in pressing the details of it? As well, it's important because if we press it too far, realize in parables sometimes sinful behavior is shown. And what do you do with sinful behavior being shown in a parable? So, like, for example... Matthew chapter 25, I just mentioned a few minutes ago, about the virgins. And it's a parable related to Christ coming back at the end of time. Let me get there and just read it to you and it'll make a little more sense here. Matthew chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Well, if you press the details, is this an example for us of not sharing? What do you do with that? Well, you don't press the details. That's not what this, this particular parable is about. This is about Christ returning and being ready. We don't press the details of the five and the five or why they didn't share. That's not the point of a parable. Likewise, in Luke 16, you have a parable of a dishonest steward. What do you do with that one? Because here you have a guy who's being dishonest with his master, but trying, he knows his end has come. What do you do with that? Well, it's a parable teaching us a point about Christ's return. This man saw his fate, and he took steps because of the judgment to come. So you, you, you get the main idea. You don't press the details of, oh my goodness, Luke 16 is an example for me of why I should be dishonest and steal from my employer. And we don't press the details, we end up with some dangerous things on it. The, oh, let me give a quick disclaimer. The only time we press the details in a parable is if Scripture does. Because there's a few places where Jesus does. Luke 13, the parable of the seeds and the sower. And that one, every detail has a lot of meaning built into it. But Jesus interprets it for us and tells us. So unless there's a compelling reason where Scripture interprets Scripture, like we talked about a month or two back there, unless there's a compelling reason where Scripture interprets Scripture where we need to press it, we only look at the big picture and we don't get hung up on the little details. 
if that makes sense. That's what we do not do. Now, what do we do to understand the parables? Let's turn it positive. Number one, we look for the theme of the kingdom of God. We look for the theme of the kingdom of God because almost every parable will relate somehow to this theme, this teaching of the kingdom of God. What do we mean by kingdom of God? Well, when we use it, we typically are thinking of God's sovereign rule over all things. In this particular context of parables, this is the coming of Jesus. This is the beginning of redemption coming into the world, the introduction of the kingdom of God coming to humanity, coming into our existence. And it's like we've talked about in other places before, there's an already not yet part of the kingdom. The kingdom has come, but it's not fully realized. There's still more to come when Christ comes back. And so you'll see this idea of the kingdom coming, the beginnings of the kingdom in the parables. With that said, the theme of the kingdom includes discipleship. Because you're thinking that God's kingdom included in that is how do we live in this kingdom? What, are, what does God require of us? What does God expect of us in this kingdom? And what happens if we don't follow him in that? What are the punishments? What are the disciplines for not following him? And the, and the parables all deal with those themes. In fact, it's pretty easy to find this particular theme in the parables. So, like, if you go to Matthew 13, which is where there's just a string of parables put together. So, like, for example, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in a field. Verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that man took and sowed in his field. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. Do you catch the theme here? It's making it pretty easy for us in most of these. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And it even carries on later in Matthew. If you go into Matthew chapter 18, verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. Chapter 22, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent servants to call those who are invited to the wedding. We go and we keep going. Matthew 25, verse 1. And the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And then in verse 14 as well, that for it, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. Do you catch the theme there? It's easy to miss that, but almost all the parables are about this theme of the kingdom of God. And if we don't get that theme, we're going to misinterpret the parables. So when you look at the parable, one of your first questions will be, where is the kingdom of God in this? And what does it have to do with it? When it says, when it's beginning each time, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's basically saying, this is what it is like in the kingdom of God. This is how things work in the kingdom of God. Of God. So number one, look for that theme. Number two, and there's a typo on your handout that I tried to proof it. It says identity, the audience. That should be identify the audience. And the OCD in me wanted to reprint all these, but the practical one in me thought about the budget cost of reprinting all these in color to correct a letter. So just fix that one on your handout for me. Right? To identify the audience. This is to know who Jesus is addressing because it will change your understanding if you know who the audience is. So, for example, we read a little bit ago from Matthew 25, the parable of those ten virgins. Who is the audience? Who is Jesus talking to? Well, how does that help make sense of it? We have to go back a little bit and start scanning through. And you get back to Matthew chapter 24, one chapter before, Matthew 24, verse 3. And he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Okay, here's the audience. Jesus is talking privately to the disciples. It's called the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives teaching his disciples. So all of a sudden now, this parable of ten virgins is being addressed not to the broader, broader audience, but to his disciples. He's talking about his return, his coming. All of a sudden, that context of knowing the audience makes a lot more sense of what he's trying to teach in that parable of the ten virgins. He's talking about the end of time and his 
return. Again, he's not telling them to be selfish with their oil and not share with their neighbors. How about the parable of the lost sheep? The parable of the lost coin. If you go back to Luke chapter 15, these are very common parables. And actually following this is the parable of the prodigal son, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But in Luke chapter 15, he told them a parable. What, what, this is verse 3 and 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls the other friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, that gets interpreted in all sorts of ways, but who is Jesus speaking to? Just to give us some clarity, go back to verse 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So what's Jesus saying in the parable of the lost coin? He's not talking to us. He's talking to the grumblers. It's on the, it's on the Pharisees who were grumbling that sinners are believing. And so he is trying to rebuke them. The parable of the lost sheep is as nice and quaint as it sounds in a children's book. It's actually a parable of rebuke against the Pharisees for grumbling that salvation had come to the sinners. So second of all, you identify the audience. Number one, you look to the theme for the kingdom of God. But number three, briefly, you look for imagery. And this is a harder force because we're in a different culture. So imagine this for a minute. If you have friends from another culture, let's say you have a friend from China. Your friend from China is sitting in your house and picks up your Sunday Montgomery Advertiser newspaper. And they open up, and inside it, or on the front page, this is during election season, there's a cartoon of an elephant and a cartoon, it's a cartoon of an elephant and a cartoon of a, what's the other political, the donkey, I'm having a senior moment there, talking to one another with Washington, D.C. in the background. Well, if you pick that up, you immediately know what this is about. This is about Republican and Democrat debates and differences going on. You hand that to your friend from China, and they see a donkey and an elephant talking in Washington. They go, is there a zoo there? You know, I mean, well, how do they understand that? They don't get that image, but that's an image so ingrained in our culture that we see that we know politics. Two parties, issues going on in D.C., and it all makes sense to us. But for our friends from China, they could read that. They could even read the little blurb on the cartoon of talking back and forth, and it would make absolutely no sense to them because they don't get the core image. In a lot of ways, that's what we're faced as we look at Scripture. There are images very common to Jewish people at that time that are used in parables that often just kind of go over our heads, so to speak. I'm giving you a chart here from a guy named Rob Plummer. Um, he's a professor up at Southern Seminary. And he, these are some of the most common images in parables and who they represent, like father, master, judges, shepherds, and kings. When you see those in parables, those are helping us understand a truth about God. When you see son, vineyard, vine, Fig tree, these are usually images that the Jewish people would understand to be about Israel, God's people. Sheep would be God's people. Servants would be followers of God. Enemies, the devil. Harvest relates to judgment. Wedding feast would be messianic banquet, the coming of the coming age when Christ returns. These would be images that would be all too familiar for them, but we don't always get what they are necessarily looking at. Again, these are not allegories, but these are images to teach us what that main point is, that truth of that. So look for the images as you look at the parables. Now, number four. Look for what would surprise the original audience. Look for what would surprise the original audience because parables have unexpected turns. Parables have surprises, surprise endings. They have twists. They have plot twists. Why? I mean, who wants to watch a movie where everything is like methodical? This is going to happen. Well, I know what's going to happen next. I mean, you get up and walk out if you know what's going to happen. Movies that captivate us are the movies where you don't know, you're on the edge of your seat, not sure what's going to happen next. And the parables are designed to do that. The people listening are hearing, okay, where's he going to go? Who's going to be the one who's going to be the good Samaritan? Who's going to be the one who's going to really help out? They're waiting, and it's totally not what at all what they expect. And so, like, take the image of the prodigal son. 
He comes home, the father's on the porch watching, and he runs to his son. Well, in our culture, we don't get much about that. Oh, good, the father's excited. But when I would share that story with my friends from China or friends from the Middle East, their mouths would be open when I shared that. Because those are shame cultures, not right-wrong cultures. Like they're shame-based cultures. And this son has shamed his father. In their culture, if you shamed your family, you're done with. The family turns their back on you. Now it's not just the family doesn't turn their back, but the father's running. The father who's been shamed is running. And so, like, my friends from other countries, when I share this story, I mean, their mouths would drop. Because they get the imagery, and we share it with Americans. They're kind of like, oh, yeah, God the Father's nice. You know, because we don't get the, the image, that surprise of that. Likewise, when we get to this, particularly the story of the Good Samaritan, we miss a lot of it because what Jesus does, he makes the villain the hero and the hero the villain. And we read that and we're like, so what the Samaritan stops? What's the big deal? We don't get what a plot twist that would be. There's a particular author named Gordon Fee who writes about how to understand the Bible. He's written one of the many books on how to do that. And trying to get this point across, he actually, in a sense, did a, I wouldn't even say a translation. He rewrote the parable of the Good Samaritan to try to create for us in our culture the shock value the original hearers would hear. So, again, this is not inspired scripture, but just I'm reading this to you to help you catch the shock value of perhaps what the early hearers would hear when they heard the word Samaritan. Here's how he did it. A family of disheveled, unkept individuals was stranded by the side of a major road on a Sunday morning. They were in obvious distress. The mother was sitting on a tattered suitcase, her hair uncombed, clothes in disarray, with a glazed look in her eyes, holding a smelly, poorly clad, crying baby. The father was unshaved, dressed in coveralls, a look of despair on his face as he tried to corral two other youngsters. Beside them was a run-down old car that obviously just given up the ghost. Down the road came a car driven by the local bishop. He was on his way to church. Though the father of the family waved frantically, the bishop could not hold up his parishioners, so he acted as though he did not see them. Soon came another car, and again the father waved furiously, this car was driven by the president of the Kiwanis Club, and he was too late for a stateside meeting of Kiwanis presidents in a nearby city, so he too acted as though he did not see them. He kept his eyes straight on the road ahead of him. The next car that came was driven by an outspoken local atheist who had never been to church in his life. When the atheist saw the family's distress, he took them into his own car. After inquiring as to their need, he took them to a local motel where he paid for a week's lodging while the father found work. He also paid for the father to rent a car so he could look for work and gave the mother cash for food and new clothes. And kind of that feeling we would get at that would be at least in a small way, what, even more so what the, Samar- what the Jews would have felt when they saw the Samaritan being the hero and the Jewish leaders being the villain in that particular story. So look for what the shock value would be, what the surprise would be, but you have to look at it, again, through a historical and cultural lens. We talked a few weeks ago about understanding culture in the Bible. And friends, that's hard for us. We're in different cultures. This is where, again, I'd recommend a good study Bible to you. Because a good study Bible is going to help you look and see things that we would miss in the cultural differences of, why, of how the original hearers would probably have been surprised or shocked at what they heard. But of all the points, the most important thing we do when we understand parables is number five here. We find the one main singular point out of the parable. One point only. The most important thing you do in understanding parables. Robert Stein actually got to take this guy in a class many years ago. He wrote a book called A Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible. And he has four really helpful questions to help us get to the main point of the parable. Number one, who are the main characters? You look in a lot of the stories, and there's a lot of characters in there. But narrow that down. Who are the two or three people who are most important for the flow of the story? If you can figure them out, you're going to quickly be on track to find the main point. Number two, what occurs at the end of the story? Because parables operate under a rule called the rule of end stress. Think of your movies. Your movies build, 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 and there's some big climax. They don't put the climax in the middle of the movie. You never watch the rest of it. The climax is the end. The big thing you've been waiting for is the end of the movie. 
Same thing with the parables. The last few lines normally are the most important part of it. It's going to stress the main point. And so you kind of figure out where this parable is building to and what it's saying to end, and that's most likely going to point you to the main idea of it. Number three, what appears in direct discourse? That's just a fancy term for direct conversation. Basically, who is speaking and who is having a conversation with one another? You can figure out where the conversation centers. It's going to lead you to understanding of it. So if you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, did you know in the parable, sorry, that parable of the Good Samaritan, if you think of the parable of the prodigal son, in that parable, you never have a conversation when the son returns between the father and the son. Like, you don't see the son talking back. We usually focus in on that parable on the, the, the prodigal, but the conversation is actually between the father and the older brother. So you get to wrestle with this in your groups. What does that tell us about the meaning of the parable when what we typically go to is it being a parable about the prodigal son, but the conversation is all about the older brother out in the field who is upset. So who is having the conversation? And lastly, is similar. Who gets the most space? Who's the focus? Who gets the focus and the attention of this parable? So turn the page. Before we break into groups, I want to take just a few minutes, and we're going to work through these questions together with a parable. Okay? Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. Verse 5. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Verse 7, they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to him, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who were, and those, sorry, verse 9, and when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they'd receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And in receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last workers I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I chose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. So here's the questions we think of when we look at a parable. Number one, should we focus on the wage being a denarius? Should that be our attention in looking at the parable, why they got paid in the area? No, that should be our focus. Is it really important in this parable why he calls some at different hours of the day? No, that, that's not important to the parable. That doesn't at all impact the meaning. That's just the story, the fictitious details Jesus put in here to tell us a very real spiritual truth here. Question two, is there a theme of the kingdom of God here? Look at verse one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. So he tells us what this is going to be about. This is like, there's principles about how God's kingdom works, what's going on in God's kingdom. So yes, there's a kingdom of God theme here in this particular one. So who is the audience here? Well, it doesn't tell us in this passage. We have to go back a little bit further. And so it's not on your sheet there, but if you glance back at Matthew chapter 19, again, this one is not as clear cut as some of them, but Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So the Pharisees are here testing him. But in this, if you go to 19, chapter 19, verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case, the disciples are there. So obviously around him are the Pharisees and the disciples. But right before this one, this parable, verse 16, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This is the rich young ruler. 
So who's he speaking to here is apparently a pretty diverse group that includes maybe even the rich young ruler still. It's including the disciples and obviously the Pharisees who are here to test him. So he's got a very broad audience for this particular parable. Next, are there images here that the original audience would have recognized? And yes, when they hear the word landowner, that's going to equate to master. Who's that going to be for them? God. They're going to equate that one with God pretty quickly in this. Laborers, servants. Remember from the image chart, who would that be? His followers, us. They're going to catch that imagery there. This is the imagery of God and his followers on this. So the next, who are the main characters here? Well, in this, you have a lot of characters. You have the master of the house, the landowner. You have the, the first workers, the 11th hour workers, third, sixth, and ninth hour workers. Are the third, sixth, and ninth hour workers important for this story? No, they, they don't. They're just, again, details as a story, this parable, this fictitious story. They're the details that make this story flow. The important characters for the story are obviously the landowner and the first hour ones and the 11th hour ones. But particularly, not even the first hour ones, it's the 11th hour ones who get the focus here, the characters of this. So what occurs at the end of the parable? And again, it's not always going to necessarily be the last ones here. How does it end? It ends with the first hour workers grumbling. If you watch the progression on here, the, the first one, the first hour workers were grumbling. Now, notice how it would change the meaning of the parable if the ending was different. What if it ended with the first hour workers getting paid first and the 11th hour workers getting paid last and they got the same out and they went, what a generous master you are. Well, that ending changes the whole parable if it ends that way. The ending, the rest of the details could be identical. You shift that one ending from being about the first hour workers, 11th hour workers, and it changes the whole meaning of the parable. But the ending here is all about the first hour workers who are grumbling. And in real life, who was grumbling? The Pharisees. They come to test him. They didn't like the fact he was eating with sinners and sinners were believing. And so there's a connection here. It looks like he perhaps is, again, rebuking the Pharisees in this. Next question, who appears in direct discourse? The landowner and the first hour workers here. Not all the workers, but the first hour ones, the ones who were grumbling. Again, it would be totally different if it was the 11th hour workers being like, thank you, you're so generous. But it's the first hour workers who are talking. So the meaning is going to be tied up in the conversation between the master and the first hour workers on this. With that, closely related is who gets the most space? It's first hour workers Again, so you put all that together. What does this mean? It means that he's rebuking the Pharisees for grumbling about God's generosity. The Pharisees are grumbling about God's generosity and saving sinners. I mean, they're they're the righteous, the upright, the religious leaders, and you know they think everyone should follow as precisely as they follow. And the fact that Jesus is associated with people who don't uphold all the laws perfectly like they they do, that they, they hate Jesus for that. And Jesus is rebuking them. He's rebuking them because they are not rejoicing at God's generosity. It's saving people very different than themselves. So that's what that means. Now, what about the application for us, this parable? Because there's meaning and there's application to a text. This means we should grumble. Or we should, sorry, that's wrong. We should rejoice and not grumble. Don't quote me. We should rejoice and not grumble when we see God's salvation at work. Friends, if there are people who have wronged you over and over and over and hurt you over and over and over, and they come to faith in Christ and see God's mercy in their life, this is the parable for you. We don't, re- we, we don't grumble, but we rejoice. When God's mercy and kindness goes to anyone, we rejoice over that. So that's the, the application of that particular parable, which is very different than the way most of us have probably heard it taught over the years. So with that, those things in view, turn to your discussion questions on the back. 
And this is what I'd like you to break up into your groups to talk about. Number one, have you heard a parable taught allegorically? If so, did it seem convincing at the time? I have. I've heard lots of things in my life of parables being taught allegorically. I'm kind of looking forward to overhearing a little bit of your conversations, hearing what y'all have heard taught. You may not have, but I'd be curious if you've heard parables taught allegorically and what made it so compelling. Number two, I want you to look at Luke chapter 15, the first seven verses, the parable of the lost sheep. I alluded to this one earlier. And at the beginning of it, there's two groups mentioned, the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees. Which of those two groups is going to be Jesus' audience in this one? And what, how would the meaning be different depending on which group is the audience? Does that make sense? So if this parable, the lost sheep, is addressed to the tax collectors and sinners, the lost sheep themselves who are being rescued, how does that impact the meaning? But if this parable is being directed to the Pharisees, how does that change the meaning of the parable? Does that make sense? Okay, number three. I want you to follow through with a little bit later in Luke 15, and that's the parable of the prodigal son that I mentioned briefly a few minutes ago. I want you to work through the same questions we just worked through. Is there a theme here of the kingdom of God? Who is the audience? You're going to have to look back to the beginning of the chapter to find it. Are there images here that the original audience would recognize? Who are the main characters? What happens at the end? Who appears in the direct discourse? Again, who speaks the most? And again, here, the person that you would, the way we normally teach it, you would expect the conversation to be focused on a different person than who it is, who gets the most space. And so put that together as a group, and then how would you summarize that parable in one sentence in light of those things? And then the last one, do you have a favorite parable? If so, what is it? And could you take these principles and think through your favorite parable and describe it for your group in one sentence of what the, the main teaching is of your favorite parable? And then take a few minutes in and just encourage one another by praying for one another. If you have burdens, concerns on your heart, take some time to intercede for one another. So the guys who normally lead our groups for us, would you stand up? I see several of you guys around right here. Okay. And so if the rest of you would just kind of disperse yourself um, around these guys and, um, and we'll divide up in our groups and talk about these things. If you have any questions, just let me know.